Good morning, everybody. Uh, today we're going to talk about someone named Benedict. Benedict was uh, lived in the 6th century, and he became a monastic, and he wrote a book that is now known as The Rule, and this book was written to govern the monastery that he founded. The rule has since been used for centuries, up until the present day, uh, by a variety of monastic communities and has proven over and over again its trustworthiness as a guide to Christian community and Christian discipleship. So the rule consists of a prologue and 73 chapters. Chapters is kind of a misleading word. Each one is a few paragraphs. Um, and these, uh, these, this prologue in 73 chapters direct the regular day-to-day -day lives of monks who are living in community with each other. So it gives guidance or rules for how to worship, how to work, how to eat, how to sleep, how to speak, um, pretty much anything you do in a day. It is notable for its firm but very gentle nature, and I would say that it's well worth reading even today. And the three traditional vows that uh, monks, nuns, and priests are kind of famous for taking um, are rooted in Benedict's rule. Uh, so those three vows are a vow of obedience, a vow of poverty, and a vow of celibacy. And in many ways, these three vows epitomize the spirit of the rule because they're all about putting your life and future into God's hands rather, into, rather than into your own. So, for example, with the promise of obedience, the monk gives up his own will and his own authority. The direction and purpose of his life no longer belongs to himself. Rather, they belong to God and to God's community. With the promise of poverty, the monk gives up his own resources and his own ability to take care of himself. He must trust God and God's people to fully provide for the daily necessities of life, including the most basic things like food and shelter. And with the promise of celibacy, the monk gives up not only his own pleasures right now, but much more significantly, he gives up his own future. He must trust God rather than his own biological ability to produce children to give him an eternal monument and future. Benedict wrote that these things are, quote, becoming to those who value nothing as more dear to themselves than Christ. So Benedict's rule can easily be found online and is well worth reading. Maybe we can put a link in the e-blast. Um, it's a lesson from our Christian brothers and sisters of the past and how to fully trust God with all that we need and all that we want. Today's scripture comes from Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 36. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Why we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. 
whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they will bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he, he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what we are that you grumble against us. And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an, o an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. And they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stink. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it as much as as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each, and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two, for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like cordoner seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omar of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omar of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omar is the 10th part of an ephah. Well, I've got a pretty big problem as I start this message because um, I'll be talking today about an issue, a particular sin struggle, and the problem is none of us think we struggle with it. Um, None of us think we struggle with it, which is a pretty big problem for a preacher, right? Uh, This today, the sin that I'm talking about is kind of the carbon monoxide of sins. It creeps in undetected. It's tasteless and odorless. You just never know when it's, when it's existing inside your heart. Does anybody know the vice or the sin struggle that I'm talking about? Shout it out. Greed. Yes. Yes, greed. Let's just do a quick experiment. Uh, I want you to think of somebody who's really greedy. Just get the picture of the person in your mind. Um, just off the charts, you know, they, 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 they just really, really struggle with this. How many of you are thinking of yourself? Yeah, it's a perfect example, right? When you think of greedy people, it's always somebody else. It's never us that struggles with greed. Listen to this. This is what Tim Keller says about greed in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He said, some years ago, I was doing a seven-part series of talks on the seven deadly sins at a men's breakfast. My wife, Kathy, told me, I'll bet that week you deal with greed will be the lowest attendance. She was right. People packed it out for lust and wrath and even for pride, but nobody thinks they're greedy. As a pastor, I've had people come to me and confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin, almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and people around me. Greed hides itself in the victim. The money God's modus operandi includes blindness to your own heart. So that would be one reason why we don't detect greed is because that's part of of the way it operates. It's, It's a cloaking device, right? We've got a very vocal cricket behind us here. Uh, So he's either, you know, just hasn't gotten the, the worship with song is over, but the cricket just keeps on going. Um, Now, what are some of the other reasons why nobody thinks that they're greedy? Because this is interesting, isn't it? Like, it's one of the seven deadly sins. It's very, very much talked about in the Bible. Jesus talked about money more than he talked about a lot of other kinds of sins. So why don't we think we have it? Well, one of the reasons, for sure, is that um, all of our life situations put us in contact with people who are very much like us or people who have slightly more than us. That's who we spend the bulk of our time comparing ourselves with. So our neighborhoods where we live, the circles of friends we hang out with, our, our, our coworkers, they all seem to want the things and like the things and, and talk about the things they need very much like us. We think, well, that's normal, right? The things that I want and need, those are normal things. It's the people way above me, those are the greedy people. And we're all doing that. We're all looking up the ladder of people that are on the rung above me. And you can almost, almost everybody in the world can find a rung of people, by the way, um, above them. Those are the people that really struggle with greed, but certainly not us. 
on top of this, on top of this, I found that there's a certain number of myths out there uh, that Christians believe about greed. And I thought, let's go go through a couple of these here as we begin this morning. Myth number one: only rich people struggle with greed. You ever said that to yourself or thought that? Like, well, I certainly couldn't be greedy because I, I don't have a lot of money, right? Or I'm not, I'm not really well-to-do. Only rich people struggle with greed. Well, in our passage today, we're going to see a bunch of people who have just come out of slavery for hundreds of years. They've got nothing. They've got no homes. Of course, they did plunder the Egyptians, so they got a little bit of wealth on the way out. But they have, they have no land. They have no generational wealth, and yet they're struggling with greed. Sometimes the poorest people really struggle with greed. Second myth, greed, greed only pertains to money. Um, Thomas Aquinas defines greed as an excessive love of or desire for money or any possession that money can buy. So greed isn't just about money, it's also about possessions, but it's also about internal feelings, like security we're going to talk about today, right? It's, I want to feel a certain way, and that's, I can get at that through money and possessions. So greed is called a disordered love. It's a disordered loving of money and possessions. Thirdly, third myth, greed is just about lavish spending. You know, chances are when you were thinking of the greedy person in your mind, you might have been thinking of a celebrity, a movie star, somebody that's like on MTV Cribs and, you know, showing off all their finer things and their, their incredible square footage in their house and all those kinds of things. And that can certainly, um, they can be a candidate for greedy people. But this actually isn't the full picture. There are really two ways this vice is broken down historically, according to Rebecca DeYoung. And um, it's broken down into two words, avarice, which is being too attached to money and possessions, right? And then prodigality, which is just like the word sounds, uh, which is being too careless with money and possessions. So you just like, you just blow it all the time. And the opposite virtue of greed is, of course, generosity, that's the, that's the virtue that we want to be culted, cultivated into our hearts. And so you can see how both avarice, clinging too tightly to money and possessions, being stingy with it, and just the blowing of it, the carelessness with it, those will both prevent you from ever growing into the virtue of generosity. Right? One, because you can't get rid of or you can't, you can't um, let go of it. And the other one, because you'll never have any of it around to give. So both of those are equal sides of the, the vice of greed. And the truth is there's probably lots of different motivations if we look at our hearts underneath the vice of greed. I mean, the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So there's probably lots of different um, motivations, root motivations behind it. But I think there are two main ones that Christians especially run into. And we're going to be looking at those two over the next two weeks. We're in this series called Get Out, and we've been comparing um, two narratives of God with his people, the Israelites and the church, side by side. So Exodus and Acts. And these next two weeks, we're going to be talking about um, greed. So first of all, this week, the Israelites' greed. And then next week, greed in the church. And so this week, we're looking at the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness. And uh, we're going to look at how their greed is actually fueled by security. All right? Next week is a different motivation, more greed fueled by significance. But this week, greed fueled by security is what we're going to be talking about. And I have to confess, this is my type of greed. Um, 
This is my type of greed. You know, I, I'm not one of those people that really needs nice stuff all the time. I don't, like, think about, oh, if I could get this kind of cool car, then I would look so much cooler, even though I have a pretty sweet car. If you've ever ridden in the, the rolling tackle box, you know what I mean. Um, I, I, just don't, I just don't think about awesome things to have. But what I love, I love, I love security. Maybe you're like that, like, like me. Like you just love feeling secure, like you're ready for anything bad that's going to happen in life. Like when you read the news, you, you think, boy, it's, it's a crazy world out there, isn't it? And, and boy, I sure hope I'm ready for those circumstances that could come my way. Well, that's me. That's me. And we see Israel struggling with the same thing here in our passage. And at the end of the day, the message is so, so clear in this passage that greed is a lack of trust in God. Greed says, I must provide for myself. Greed says, I must take care of myself. Greed says, I, we, if I don't do this, I will never have enough. So at its root, greed doubts whether God sees us, whether he knows our need, and whether he cares enough to do anything about it. Right? And so you can see how this can be an incredibly damaging thing to our relationship with God. And so here's what I want to do. I'm going to pray for us because, you know, when it comes to these vices that really easily hide themselves in us, it's important to just start with prayer to say, Lord, would you open the eyes of my heart? Holy Spirit, would you show me where this has begun to creep into my life and then help me to move away from this vice and towards virtue? And so let's pray. Holy Spirit, we just ask you for a time of incredible clarity here. Uh, we know that we resist seeing this in ourselves. We maybe resist change. We may be blind to it, thinking other people struggle with this, not us. Would you help us to see it this morning? And would you help us to move in the direction of generosity, the direction of contentment, as you would have for us to be? It's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this morning, as we look at our text, it's going to be kind of like WebMD. How many of you like WebMD? I'm sure our doctors maybe don't like that we're all doing WebMD all the time because we all self-diagnose all the time. But um, it's kind of like that, right? Like you look at a list of symptoms, and if you can check a few of these, chances are you, you really are slipping into this vice. And so I've got four symptoms from our text today that um, we're going to see here. And I would like for you to just prayerfully say, Holy Spirit, is this me? But don't just stop there. What I like to do with this vice of greed, because I know I can lie to myself about it. I know that it hides itself in me. I like to go to my Christian community, a life group, a D group, close Christian friends, my wife, and say, do you see this vice growing in me? Like, this is one area where you really need to not just rely on your own insight here, but rely on your Christian community to help you. They will help you. They'll say, yeah, uh, gee, I, I think you are struggling with that. Let's pray about that. Let's walk alongside. Let's be accountable. Um, I think that's incredibly helpful. So um, don't just stop with, with self-diagnosis. Bring your Christian community on in. Here's four symptoms that we see of greed, especially greed motivated by security in this text. First of all, the first symptom is grumbling against God. Look at verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And then Moses makes it clear in verse 8 to them, who do you think you're grumbling against? It's not us. You're grumbling against the Lord, right? I remember we did a, a, a teaching series of John Bevere years ago. Some of you might remember this. And John was talking about this very same passage, the Israelites grumbling in the wilderness. And he said this. He said, 
um, grumbling is rebellion against God because it says to God, I don't like what you're doing, and if I were you, I would do it differently. And I had never thought about grumbling and complaining that way. Certainly, God doesn't want us to be plastic people. Like, he wants us to voice our concerns to him. He wants us to, you know, he's okay with us crying out why. The Psalms are full of that. But just straight up grumbling, continual complaining. It's like rebellion against God. It's like, you don't know what you're doing, God. You don't know what, I don't like what you're doing, and if I were you, I'd do it differently. That's heavy, but we need to think about grumbling in that way. And the opposite of grumbling is the Christian virtue called contentment. And, of course, the Apostle Paul famously says, I've learned the secret of being content in every circumstance, good and bad. So he's learned to be content in every situation. And that means contentment is not natural or intuitive to us. We're not, like, naturally born as content people. Like, it's not necessarily just part of your Myers-Briggs-ness that you're just like, yeah, I'm just a content person. This is something that the Holy Spirit works into you. It's something that it's a virtue to grow into. It's, it's a secret, really, to learn. And the big way that we learn this secret is that we make Jesus our ultimate treasure. Just like Christina was talking about with um, the rule of St. Benedict, um, when Jesus is your ultimate treasure, that's the first place where you start learning contentment, right? When he's your ultimate thing. That doesn't mean he's your only thing. Like, you still have other things in your life that you value. But if Jesus is your ultimate thing, then the posture of your heart has not changed whether circumstances are good or bad, right? He's your ultimate thing. It's why Jesus um, says that when you find the kingdom of God is like finding buried treasure in a field, You'll do anything to get it. You'll go and sell everything you have to get it. When you've done that, when you've discovered Jesus is your ultimate treasure, you can lose everything in your life, and the posture of your heart is still the same because you still have your ultimate thing that can never, ever be taken away from you. So contentment is rooted in God being your ultimate treasure. You know, a few weeks ago, I was watching an, an interview with a tournament bass fisherman. I know I'm weird. I know I'm a nerd, okay? Uh, I love this tournament fishing stuff. And this guy was down, from down south, and he had a thick southern accent. And he was clearly a Christian because um, he, he was just coming up in the tournament um, ranks and stuff and hadn't won anything. And so it's really hard to make money if you're kind of at the bottom. But once you start winning, you can make a lot of money, even sometimes millions of dollars. And on this first day, he had done really well and was in the lead going into the second day of the tournament. And so hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of dollars on the line. And they interviewed him and they said, what do you need to do on this second day to win this tournament? And this is what he said. I was just blown away. I didn't even know he was a Christian until he started talking. But he said this. He said, I try not to say what I need anymore. I have lots of things that I want, but only God knows what I need. So I'm going to go out there and fish my hardest and enjoy God's creation. And whatever happens at the end of the day, I'm going to trust that he gave me what's best for me. I just thought, whoa, all of a sudden this man's preaching at me. I wasn't expecting that from a fishing video. I'm going to trust that God gave me what's best for me. I got lots of things that I want. Only God knows what I need and he's my ultimate treasure. So as long as I have him, the posture of my heart is not changed, good or bad. Yeah, I, I want certain things. And he admits it. Like, I'd like to win. For sure, that would feel good. I don't know if that's what I need. God does, though. He knows what I need. 
Rebecca DeYoung says in her book, Glittering Vices, like the other vices rooted in pride, because greed is rooted in pride, greed expresses the do-it-yourself method of finding happiness instead of the contentedness of receiving the good that God has to give and depending on his provision. See, that's it, right? It's not a do-it-yourself method of finding happiness. It resists that, and it says, I got to depend on God for his provision. So grumbling is the first symptom, friends. Do you find yourself complaining, grumbling about all the circumstances that you wish were different in your life? Because chances are that might be one of the symptoms of greed kind of sneaking its way in. You think, if I had this, then my do-it-yourself plan for happiness would be working. And this stuff is getting in the way. God's not doing what he ought to be doing. Because otherwise my plan would be working. So grumbling is the first symptom. But secondly, we see distrust of God's motives. Verse 3, and the people of Israel said to them, what would... What that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. you got to love the Israelites. I mean, just like at the Red Sea, the people get really accusatory really quickly. And these are not light accusations. They're saying, like, Moses, Aaron, and ultimately to God, you brought us out here to kill us again, right? You you brought us out here to watch us starve to death. That's a pretty heavy accusation, right? Now, perhaps they just all needed a Snickers, right? I mean, they're hungry at this point, and you're not yourself when you're hungry, right? So maybe they're just grouchy because they're a little hungry and they need a Snickers. But here's the problem. The problem is not that they're not being their true selves at this moment. The problem is that they are being their, their true selves, Nothing like a little hunger to reveal what's deep inside of us. Because at those dry times in your life, at the times where it's hard to see God's provision, at the times where you don't see it, that's the times when the bitterness and the anger and the resentment start to come out of you. That's the time when you see the ugly that's really inside. That's why I have such a love-hate relationship with the discipline of fasting. Any of you have the same thing? Oh, fasting, just miserable. Because you get, to, you get to feel the effects of the hunger, but you also get to see the nasty stuff that's deep inside of you. Nothing like a little hunger to bring all that stuff to the surface. And almost every time I do it, I realize like, yep, I'm short with people that I absolutely adore. Yep, when I don't get my way, when I'm a little hungry, I get cranky. I get hangry, right? Um, yeah, I, I don't like to see those things, but that is who I really am. And when we find ourselves in those tough times and we instantly start accusing God of things, it reveals a deep distrust that's been a problem since the very beginning, since Adam and Eve. And Anne was talking about this this morning before the prayer time. Like, realize the first lie that Satan told Adam and Eve is, you will not surely die because God knows if you eat of this, you're going to become like him. You're going to know good and evil. In other words, what he was saying to them is, "Uh, you can't really trust God right? God's holding out on you, you understand. Like, God knows there's this really, there's this ocean of good stuff over here, and he doesn't want you to taste that. He doesn't want you to have the really good stuff. You can't really trust him. It gets you to doubt God's motives. And over and over today, we're going to see that resisting the vice of greed in our lives really just comes down to trust. It just comes down to trust. 
trusting God knows what's best for us and that he's the one providing for us, trusting that his intentions for us are always, always good, even when he allows difficult things in our lives, which is way easier said than done, right? To trust that God has good intentions when it feels like you're going through the wilderness. feels like you're starving to death and there's no food in sight. It's really difficult to trust God in those moments. But again, trusting God is the key. And distrusting him, jumping to these huge, huge um, negative motives of God. Like, you just brought us out here to starve us to death, didn't you? Ah, that's a sign of greed starting to creep its way into our hearts. So first of all, grumbling. Secondly, distrust in God's motives. And then the third symptom we see here is hoarding what God gives. Hoarding what God gives. So God hears the grumbling of the people, and instead of punishing them for their really bad attitudes and for their crazy accusations of him, what does he do? He gives to them. He feeds them. I mean, what a gracious God that we serve. I mean, he could have been terribly offended, like, are you serious? I brought you through the Red Sea. I, I did all this stuff. I liberated you from Egypt, and now you accuse me of bringing you out here to starve you to death? Who do you think I am? But instead of that, he just gives to them. He gives them quail in the evening for meat. This had to be millions of birds, by the way. Imagine all these birds flying into the desert. Where do the birds come from? Just tons of birds. You know, you've got to feed millions of people here. And then this... This cool little, I don't know if it'd be like club crackers with a little honey on it. Uh, manna falling from the sky for, for breakfast. That's what he does. And then he also, in giving to them, decides to test them. He says in verse 4, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So God's asking, do you trust me? Will, are you willing to live day by day just trusting me to be your provision? And how many of you have found that God loves to operate this way? You know, I know the Robies have found this with their adoption journey. Like, you, you just throw yourself into the arms of God and say, catch. You know, if you don't, we're going to fall into the abyss here, but just catch. And he does. He loves to operate this way with his children. And hoarding is like saying to God, no, God, we don't trust you to take care of us. In fact, we have to take care of ourselves which is pretty silly at the end of the day, right? It's kind of like when you're a little kid or parents, you've maybe had a kid do this. They, they get upset with you over some rule you institute or they're just mad about something, so they go pack their bag. And you're in there packing your bag and you're like, I'm so done with this. I'm out of here. And you get your, you know, your favorite shirt in there and your pair of pants or whatever. And maybe, you know, a cool little, your slinky or whatever you're going to take with you for the road, that you, your absolute essentials. And you get down the road like a block and you're like, wait a second. Supper's in like an hour. What am I going to do for supper? And you go back home because it was stupid, right? That's what it's like. That's what it's like when we're hoarding. It's like God's the one that gave everything to us in the, in the first place. So how are we going to be the one to take care of ourselves? And we see the children of Israel just fail this test miserably. They collect too much manna on the weekdays saying, hey, I think I'll save some for tomorrow just in case God doesn't provide. And it's like you do realize you're out in the middle of the desert and he's raining down bread from heaven. Like you're already pretty dependent on him, aren't you? So your little collection for one more day, if he decides to shut off the faucet, you're toast anyway. You might live one day longer than everybody. Congratulations. But you're, you're dependent on him. 
That's what we see here. It's just, it's just kind of silly. They fail the test. They collect too much. And look at the picture. The manna that was hoarded in disobedience is rotting with worms in it by morning. And this isn't an accident. God made this happen, right? I think it's a vivid metaphor for what happens when God's people operate this way. When we hoard God's money and God's stuff, it quickly starts to rot and it stinks. And it's not just the stuff that rots and stinks. It's our very hearts that rot and begin to stink. It's because God didn't wire us to be this way. He made us in his own image. Like, we're not cul-de-sacs, we're conduits. We're streams of living water, not stagnant ponds. You ever smelled a stagnant pond in August? It stinks. There's no outflow. There's no inflow. There's no moving water. It just stinks. God has made us in his image, and he is a generous, lavish giver. And so when we operate with, hoard, with, with hoarding, with stinginess, we're the antithesis of who he created us to be. And so hoarding is the third symptom of greed growing in our hearts. And hoarding what God gives, like I already said, is probably my biggest temptation when it comes to greed. I don't long for new stuff, except for fishing stuff. But most stuff I have, I'm really, really content with. But I just, I just would, you know, when I get that gift, even though I recognize it's from the Lord, I'm so tempted to just save it all. Save it all. And I get it. It's good to have a rainy day fund. I think that's wise. It's good to not spend every cent you have for today. I think the Bible even teaches that. Dave Ramsey certainly does. You know, there's some wisdom in that. But what we have to understand is that just because there's wisdom in saving for the future, we have to be careful that our saving doesn't become a self-protection plan, right? Where we, where we just work God out of the equation altogether. And I really think at the depths of our wickedness in our hearts, we would like to, to structure our lives in such a way that we don't need him. And he's just insistent on saying, no, 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 you absolutely do need me. And I want you to live like that every single day. So even our saving for the future. It just cannot, we have to watch our hearts so closely, it cannot become a provide for myself, self-protection plan, um, self-happiness plan. We have to watch out for that. So that's the third symptom of greed is hoarding. So we have grumbling, distrust, hoarding, and then finally, overwork. It's funny in this passage, some people uh, don't gather enough and some people overgather. And uh, <laughs> I imagine God just kind of does this face palm here, like, seriously, they just can't get it right. You know, like, I told them this. I was very, very specific, but they just can't get it right. But here's the deal, friends. This call for, for a Sabbath and this call to rest is not just an arbitrary rule that God made up because he's like, hey, we don't have enough rules for my people. Let's just come up with another rule. It's not just arbitrary. Like, God put this in place for us knowing that we need rest, that our bodies are frail, that we need to recover. It's not good for us to work every day. But he also put this in place because it's a reminder every single week that he's our provision, not our own work, not our own efforts. God is our provision. A few weeks ago, we talked about how God is always calling his people to remember really important things. And most of the time, he uses feasts and celebrations to do that. Well, Shabbat for the Jews or Sabbath is just that. It's a weekly feast day. It's a weekly celebration. It's a weekly day to kick back with your friends and enjoy a cool drink and sit around by the fire and talk and, and just relax and remember that God's your provision. God's your provision. There's, you're not providing for yourself. I know you go to work. I know you work hard. 
But the Sabbath is a reminder every single week, God's providing for me, not me. I'm, re- I'm leaning on him. And God wants them to remember this so badly that they're dependent on him, that they're not self-sufficient, that they're not okay with him. Look, he's so big on this that he commands them, gather some of the manna up, put it in a giant jar, and, and make it a memorial. So you look at the manna and you remember, I fed you in the desert where there's no food. I brought millions of birds in every day to feed you. That's a pretty cool miracle, right? I dropped bread from heaven every single day to feed you. The next time you think about leaning on your own self, just remember that. I fed you in the wilderness for 40 years. I did this. And I'm wondering, you know, God's saying, I want you to live in light of that, that I fed you every single day, that I'm your provision. I'm wondering how we're doing with that today. How you're doing with, with just trusting him for your provision. I know sometimes uh, all of us are at different places in our life. For some of us, this is easy because maybe you do have money in the bank account and things are paid off and, and things look pretty good. But others of you are like, no, uh, it's not going very well. There's debt. There's payments. There's bill collectors calling. Easy for you to say, Pastor Dave. Easy for you to say that God's my provision. I know you're at different places with this. But the call is the same for us to say, God, you're my provision. I want to live like that. And here's the deal, friends. If we ever doubted that God would provide for us, we need to only look at our Jesus, right? When we were broke, when we were destitute, when we were helpless beggars, God sent Jesus to make us filthy, stinking rich. I love what 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, friends, Jesus Christ trusted the Father enough that he allowed himself to be plunged into abject poverty. He, he gave up his, his dwelling, his glory, nicest zip code of any human that's ever lived. He came to earth to be born as a baby, a poor baby, He was a blue-collar guy, right? But he didn't just give up that. He gave up everything, even his own life. He trusted the Father to give up even his own life so that you and I could become rich. And the question for you and I is then, can you trust a God that has gone to those lengths to save you? Can you trust him, right? That's the big question. Can you trust him? Can you live day to day saying, I trust you? I don't always see it. But Jesus is the final message that God can be trusted because he loves you that much. There's nothing he wouldn't give for you. Can you trust that he'll take care of you? Even if you die, that he'll care for you. You know Christians have starved to death, many, many of them. So I don't think the Bible's saying, trust God that nothing bad will ever happen to you. That's certainly not what it's saying. Many, many Christians have endured horrible deaths. I think I shared this last year, but this is one of my favorite missionary stories. Alan Gardner, he, was, um, he and his friend Williams um, were, were uh, missionaries to the southern tip of South America. And they had all their food stolen by the natives. And they ended up starving to death, dying of disease. And they found his journal. And at the end, you can see he's shaking as he's writing this, Alan Gardner. And it read... As before he died, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. His friend Williams wrote this, Ah, I am happy day and night, hour by hour, asleep or awake. I am happy beyond words. 
and the poor compass of language to tell, as I day by day and night by night lie here, what a world unknown to the world do I live and have my thoughts and move my affections in. God is indeed about my bed. Let all my beloved ones at home rest assured that I was happy beyond expression the night I wrote these lines and would not have changed situations with any man living. That heaven and love and Christ, which means one and the same divine thing, were in my heart. You see it, friends? God can care for you even as you starve to death. He can be enough for you. Here's the logic behind our trust, friends. Paul says this in Romans Chapter 8, verse 32, I'll close with this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You can see his logic there, right? If God didn't withhold his one and only son, don't you think he's going to care for you? Don't you think you matter to him? Don't you think he sees you? Don't you think you're important to him? Let's run to him and trust again today. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we can trust you. And we know we struggle with it, Lord. It isn't easy um, having our minds and, and being in our frail bodies and, and feeling all the feelings of, of doubt and fear and wanting to protect ourselves. So we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you enabled us to just throw ourselves into your very capable arms. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.